Who are all these people? I'm John's husband. No, you're not. No, I'm not. I'm still married to Alice. I'm John's best friend, Dennis. I got shot, too, on my shoulder. <laughs> Just a little bit. Oh, my God. But cooler than that, this is my son, Ephraim. And that's Carol, who's awesome. She's a vet, can't put fingers back on, but she's a great vet and a dancer and a mom. And this is my mom. Do you have those fingers? Yeah, in my pocket. Dennis has one of them, but I have the other one. Okay, then let's go. They cannot. Those are your son's fingers and his friends. Best. What? We're best friends. Uh, okay, you've said that too many times. It's weird. Let's go. All right, have it your way, Bernice. It's not my way, Tom. It's the way of putting fingers back on your son's fucking hand. I once held her in my arms. She said she would always stay. But I was cruel. I treated her like a fool. Threw it all away. Hello, everybody. Welcome to McMillan Men. This is the show where we talk about the Amazon Prime show Patriot. I'm Luke Burbank, uh, an aspiring McMillan man, a, a person who wants to learn more about the structural dynamics of flow, getting things from A to B, from A to B. Helping me along on that journey, of course, is Andrew Walsh. He's right over there. Hello, my friend. Hi, Luke. I need a favor this week. I really okay. need you to concentrate on creating very clever turns of phrase during today's show because I spent way too much time trying to think of a show title for last week's episode. So, just And like what did you come keep... up with? I went with Fingers Crossed, which I thought was kind <laughs> of clever because these guys got... Strong. I yes, it wasn't the central theme of last week's episode though. It's just an ongoing theme. You're overthinking it. I am overthinking. L- listen, it. that was my reaction. First of all, I'm a clearly a bad coworker in that I had no idea what the show was even titled. Clear, <laughs> I have not, I, I have not interacted with it in that way. But my that was my natural reaction in the wild of just hearing that it was called Fingers Crossed, well, and that's it's good. really good. All right, good. But and also, um, you know, we're gonna I, do we're gonna do even better today. Something. I think. That's why our Macmillan Men logo features a hand where the fingers are cut. Oh, that's right. When you saw that logo for the first time, <laughs> you didn't understand why. No, I had no idea. Was it listener Abby? Abby Hersey, by the way. You know, I know I've given her credit in various TBTL uh, platforms. Uh, like on oh, the what's TBTL, TBTL Andrew? <laughs> why, that's the podcast you and I do Monday through Friday, Luke. Oh, uh, people should tune in for that as well. You might even say it's too beautiful to live, but I don't think I've ever given her credit on this, the actual Macmillan Men podcast. Check out Abby Hersey. If you Google her, she is a designer who has a website, and she made our cool logo for us and just donated it to us, and I'm pretty much in love with it. It is pretty cool, that logo, Andrew. Pretty cool. Pretty good. Um, here we are at episode four of season two. Do I have that right? Yes. Uh, episode five, called, maybe? Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, maybe I have that off. I said that in a way that um, sounded really passive aggressive. I'm just going from the top of my head. But yeah, no, this was episode five. Yeah. Because okay, episode four you. was Sword Ar- in the Hand. This is Army of Strangers. Uh, Army of Strangers, which starts with the backstory on Sophie who 
to be honest with you. I didn't realize that that character had a name and that it was Sophie. Sophie, the kind of silent... I don't know if... Should we use skirts and stockings? I mean, that's such a pejorative, but it also... I don't have a name. I don't have a less hurtful name for the uh, <laughs> sort of women detectives of the of the Luxembourg Police Department. I'm comfortable going with skirts and stockings in the context of this show, as yeah. they've set it up that way. Sophie of the skirts and stockings, as a kid being taken to basically a, an asylum slash school where she meets a get. Holy S. This is not the backstory as I, I was expecting for either of them. I had no idea, of course, their relationship went back that far. It made me very excited when I realized that that character, who's one of the quote-unquote bad kids who stabs people with pencils and is sticking up for Sophie, that that bad person is a get, just keeps adding to the dimensions of her character. And then they have that great moment where they're in the woods or whatever talking about how, you know, I'm not a I'm not dumb. I just have a bad dad and uh, I'm not a bad kid. I just have a bad mom which with a get and the get's relationship with Mira uh you know, or excuse me, Mina, her daughter, that just also takes on a dimension uh that's interesting. And then it cuts to them as adults strolling down the street and I have to tell you I got emotional when I saw that. Like I don't know if it was just <laughs> you know, if I had some uh, some some bad spicy eggplant at the Thai restaurant last night, but I just like there was something about cutting from them as kids who are bonding, both of them kind of having shitty circumstances in their life to the looks on their faces as adult women just with agency, at least some amount of agency, just walking like badasses to sure shot. It gave me a strong feeling which went over into making me tear up a little bit. It's funny. I didn't tear up, but I definitely had a reaction to it, and I don't think that your reaction is misplaced. Uh, I love that. I mean, it's so badass. It reminds you of like a Tarantino, yes. a band apart. Totally. With the, the guys and the gang walking, only this time it's two really badass women and who you see. And again, like I'm – Clearly, I had forgotten like a lot of details of uh, the show, and so rewatching it, I appreciate them more. And to the listener who pointed out, don't forget, I think those tattoos that we see in a gets back at some point—that's not probably an accident. That that speaks to some sort of a backstory. I had forgotten uh, about this little backstory about how they meet as kids and how they're both kind of rejects is is not a word you should use to talk about humans i can't think of a better one right now um well no they're both just yeah they're misfits i misfits guess and they both the have word, like yeah. really shitty parents or yeah a very shitty parent yeah and then to see how that kind of tempered them and then to see who they grew up to be yeah no that's a really cool shot so that was kind of cool then we go into also you know i mean i think you and i go back and forth because we love the Vashti Bunyan song so much from season one, but this is one time where I was glad it was sure shot from the Beastie Boys. That was like the perfect uh-huh. music for them. That's a good point. Like had they been had they been traveling north, traveling north to find you, like <laughs> right. and on that walk, it takes on a completely different vibe. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know the show keeps on as it answers some questions, it, it creates more. And this week's big mystery is how did Bob Dylan's voice change so much over the years? Like I didn't know that was a Bob Dylan song. You said to me before we started recording, oh, and then we'll go from that particular scene about the fingers into that Bob Dylan song. And I was like, I mean, I didn't even recognize that to be Bob Dylan's voice when I heard it on the show. I liked the song. I liked all the music in this uh, week's episode of the show. But I did not recognize that as old uh, Bob Zimmerman of Hibbing, Minnesota. You know, I 
I'm not a huge Bob Dylan head. I do have that particular album, which is called Nashville Skyline, which is a relatively oh, early right. one. I'm looking now. It came out in 69. And I remember buying that record, you know, a long, long time ago and thinking, wow, I didn't realize how high his voice was back then. But then you get to the song Lay, Lady, Lay, which, of course, is a oh, Bob Dylan song. Yeah. And that he, he has that kind of high, almost Muppety voice in Lay, Lady, Lay, too. But anyway. Doesn't a big brass bed sound so uncomfortable? I feel like hmm. the brass, the brass is the railing of the bed. I would mm-hmm. never call it my big brass bed. Sounds like the bed is made out of brass. It just sounds lay across, lay lady lay lay across my big comfy bed. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm there. Mm-hmm. Big brass bed. No, thank you, Bob. So anyway, uh, <laughs> Patriot. All right, fine. Uh, <laughs> Dennis's uh, finger viability clock is running down. And because he's Dennis, of course, we get a classic line out of him, which is, "Yep, Tom's not my dad. My dad just owns two Arby's. <laughs> I wrote that down, Great although line. I knew I didn't need to, because I knew that that would also be on your list. Tom's not my dad. Ven- my dad just owns two Arby's. <laughs> Big Venn diagram overlap of things I like in the world. The Dennis McLaren character and references to Arby's yeah. <laughs> will never not be funny to me. Yeah, I love um, that line. And then, of course, that happens right before the tape that we just heard uh, bumping into this show where um, John's mom meets the gang. Uh, by the way, are, are you yeah. – last week I said – well, you seem surprised when I mentioned that um, – uh, John's parents was are divorced. Deborah Winger? Yeah, well, the Deborah oh. Winger thing, but also that I think they're a divorced yeah. couple. Uh, I yeah. watching this now. I mean, even more so, right? I mean, they're they're yes. divorced. I literally have a note that says, "Okay, they are definitely not okay, married yeah, anymore." Yeah, there was okay, a note yeah. to self during the watching. Yeah, this is if it's a marriage, it is it is does not fit into any of the traditional ideas of what two people being married look like right. because clearly. The only person who can put Tom in his place consistently is uh, John and Edward's mom. I mean, not just because she's the secretary of, what is it, transportation or something? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, really the way that scene unfolds is Tom is trying to kind of lock it down, and he's trying to stop Dennis from going to the hospital, and he's being, you know, sort of tough in his own way, in his Tom-esque way. And then uh, uh, John and Edward's mom sweeps in, and as we hear in that scene, it's just like, okay, the real boss is here now. Mm-hmm. Yes, Bernice. Uh, Bernice. Bernice is a, a great character so far. I feel like, uh-huh. and this is what is going to be my struggle for today, and I, and I think I will be able to um, do well by all of you, but today's uh, episode that we're discussing is such a lead up to the next episode, I feel like, where we're really kind of getting into reunion town, right? We're starting to see yes. uh, faces from the past. Eventually, we're going to see Gregory, the HR guy, who I absolutely love. One question that I have, I will save for next week. I will say, here's here's one thing wow. I'm, well, well. That's a, that's a bold forward promotion. Mm, no, let me lay this out here for you, and then keep this in mind as we talk about today's show. Lay and Andrew then, Lay, and then next. lay across my big brass pod. Uh, See, that's not a you good. You think show, I just though. throw this stuff out? It's all setting up callbacks. <laughs> it's all setting up callbacks. I wonder as we start to see more and more faces from the past, and this is a big um, kind of assumption on my part. I'm going out on a limb here. I wonder if the showrunner started to realize or see the writing on the wall, or officially know that. 
they weren't going to get another season and mm. they want to start bringing in some of these characters. I'm not talking about Bernice here, although that's how I started talking about this, but seeing Gregory back in action, uh, bringing, well, the, I bringing have... the cops to Paris. I'm wondering if it's we're kind of wanting to bring everybody back together because we don't have that much time left and it's really fun to see these characters. I would be surprised at that, and maybe someday we'll ask Stephen Conrad himself about this, because the production schedule of these shows and all of the budgets, mm, the travel budgets, yeah. the writing of the shows, there's so much machinery around it that there, I can't see a logical way that they were a few months from being done shooting and started to think we're not going to get a third season, and therefore let's... Let's rewrite the script and get the cops out. I don't that's mean that. No, that's a like really that's good such point. Such a silly idea. Yeah. But that's the one thing that would make me think it, that might be not as possible just because I think this stuff has to be really figured out way in advance just from kind of a logistical standpoint. Yeah, that's a good point. This isn't a 24-episode sitcom season where they're kind of writing as they go and adjusting things and, and uh, uh, you know, operating on actor schedules and whatnot. You're right. This is probably filmed more like a, a film. So, And it's amazing. I mean, that's funny because – my thought about this, I was having a similar thought about everybody converging back on Paris, but I was just, honestly, my thought was like, how cool would it be if you were one of the actors who got cast as the kind of misfit cops? And you were like, because again, I look up most of the actors on this show, maybe with the exception of um, Kurtwood Smith, uh, because he's, you know, pretty well known, or maybe Terry O'Quinn. I'm always looking these actors up because I'm like, hey, what else has this person done? And, you know, most of the time there are people who haven't done a lot of their IMDb page isn't really that long. Imagine booking this job and then being like, OK, we're flying you to Paris where we're shooting mm-hmm. for the next month. I mean, actually, I mean, this has nothing to do with the actual show that's happening within the show. It's more just like how cool for all the people that worked on this to get to go do this adventure. Mm-hmm. Although I bet you it is a lot of work. I can only imagine because of the attention to detail is so is so intense that I'm sure it was long, long days of getting everything just exactly right. Um, this is I'm I'm not saying anything that's not obvious to people that have that watch this episode, but I also just find Bernice so great because Bernice is just like the only person who just cuts through all the bullshit all the time. The show has so many people kind of dancing around things, and John can never quite get to the point or speak his mind the way I wish he would to his dad. And it's like, Bernice is just like, this is your fucking son's fingers. Also, Dennis, stop saying best friend. That's too many times. It's weird. (laughs) Yeah. She's just like, it's, she just, it's so cathartic for me to see her injected into this ecosystem because she's just the person who's just like, what the fuck are you all doing? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's just like, oh, thank God. Someone's lancing this boil of bad decisions that are just, building and building and building and even like it's so funny because the way this show has been laid out so far all these things are happening but most of the people are are most of the characters are sort of show up in different scenes and they're spread across geography and and timing and all of this and finally it's like when bernice walks in you're just like who is this rogues gallery in this apartment Mm -hmm. and she says to john something like who are all these people? Are all these people supposed to be here? And John's like, no, but it's cool. They're my friends. And then you look around the room and you're just like, this is a this this is a rolling circus of randos that is getting mm-hmm. out of control. And it like literally never occurred to me out of control it was till that scene. Mm-hmm. And I I just 
I keep on wanting to jump to later on in the show, but I, I think that that is something we continue to see, right? And and I derive a lot of pleasure out of like the um, shot mm. near the end of the show where they're in the park and um, mm, a bunch so of good. conversations are going on at the same time. And did that shot remind you of anything? Of the, course, the piping, it's the, right? It's the it's the pipes. Exactly. I mean, it's that exact. Well, you know, everybody comes down that kind of tree lined. A grassy lane, and then they exit to the. They all exit in the same direction. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's an inc- an incredible scene. I just want to say to you, Andrew, though, and I don't like to be critical of you on this show. I try to keep that usually kind of behind the scenes and behind your back. Mm-hmm. But I really wish you would have not watched both seasons of this show back years ago before you knew we were making a podcast about it. Why were you so selfish, and why did you watch it? Because now I feel like you're caught, you're trapped in a terrible world, which is you know so much about the show you you can't let on like i am a i am rousseau's noble savage i am just completely cut off from the society of this show i'm just like i'm just out here in the woods just experiencing this in real time and i actually feel i'm of course joking because Mm -hmm. of course you'd watch both seasons because it's a great show but like i'm kind of relieved that i don't have to make these decisions about when i'm getting too far ahead of the game because this is all i know Season two, episode five. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of my knowledge. Yeah. Well, also, just in this episode itself, I think like a lot of the stuff it, it happens kind of near the end. That I don't know. This is a very, even in a very emotionally heavy show. This was a very emotionally heavy episode. I feel like I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so maybe we should just keep rolling. And before I start apologizing again for how much I forgot mm-hmm. on my first viewing, because that is very front of mind for me. By the way, one thing I was thinking is. I, and maybe tell me if you don't want me to do this. I was actually thinking about just re-binging the last three because that'll be that'll be the last three, right? We'll be six, seven, and eight is all we have left. And really? um, yeah, and it's been really hard for me not to just like when one of these ends on the second viewing, not to just keep rolling. And now, I mean, the show is just picking up so much momentum here in this part of season two that I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to have the self-control next week to st- stop it. After one episode, my only argument for you not watching ahead is that you're not remembering things serves some purpose for you. Maybe. I know it does. Yeah, like, you'll only you'll you'll only have to make more difficult decisions about yeah about um you know uh, what to leave in and leave out of these conversations. The more sort of vivid uh, the last three episodes are, but I'll leave that to you, my friend. Uh, you're uh, you're an adult and you get to live your life the way you see fit. Um, so. Uh, we get then after basically after uh, John after Bernice shows up and is just like uh, we're going to the hospital. This is ridiculous. Uh, we get a John song. John goes and electric. It's interesting because it's musically really different than everything else, just in terms of how he's singing and the instrumentation and all that. But there are some important things in there. You know, he says like, "What does he say? My my very sweet mom or something like." Uh, it, it, that would indicate to me that he has he thinks positively towards his mother. Oh, but we know Which, that, right? He's very excited. He's the one who reached out to her. Like we've been, he's been kind of waiting for her to to come, right? Right. I guess the reason I'm, I guess, yes, you're right. It's, it's not news, but I guess it's just like as I'm trying to kind of psychoanalyze the John character, and as I'm trying to kind of go back and write a backstory for him of how he got to this point, the idea that he has a loving mom who advocates for him, it doesn't really square with how he is in the world, like. Because that makes me wonder, well, why didn't he, 
why didn't she run more interference? Why didn't he? Why is he so maladjusted? Like, how is Tom overruled? Because his mom seems like a person. Well, I mean, she's got her quirks, like she was down to watch him shoot someone. But, like, she also seems like she's being actually parental in the way you should be, which is your son's fingers are shot off. Put him back on his body. What the hell? Mm-hmm. Like, that's good parenting, in my opinion. So I wonder why John is so screwed up. Well, yeah, I mean— if we had more time, maybe we could learn more about their upbringing and, and at what point the parents split and was she around for most of it or was she in Washington being a very important person? Uh, it's hard yeah. to say. Regarding the song, you know, th- I there's no way I – mean, I hesitate to even say this because, number one, it's kind of obvious, and number two, I know that a lot of our audience knows a lot more about folk music in this world than I do, but, like, it's not a coincidence that this is an episode that has two Bob Dylan songs in it, and this is the first time we hear John, quote-unquote, go electric, right, when that was the whole thing, like, Uh, Bob Dylan goes electric, and now suddenly we hear this song that is, like, very stylistically different, like, John goes electric. Wow. I did not put that all together, but I I assume that that's a thing that was intentional. uh yeah so the uh, the thing let's see the song uh is about the pros and cons of finger reattachment uh do you have anything you want to say about the song other than by the way that's a really good insight about the going electric thing. if if Isn't the monterey jazz festival was that was that or was it woodstock where was it that he went electric and got all that shit not sh- i can't say definitively i want to say monterey though if you're throwing those out there but i'm not 100 percent sure um but the only other thing that's notable about the song other than it being a huge departure musically um is also that it's very clear that like this is another one that becomes very rambly because he's mm-hmm. he's on the drugs in the hospital so he's like for some reason he's trying to write a nursery rhyme and also talk about his life and then i believe it just ends with him kind of trailing out and being like huh what what did yeah. i just say that's what i liked about the song by the way newport folk festival newport okay is yeah. where that happened that rings a bell. save everybody an email lay off everybody who wants to email and incorrect us it was the theme um, from barney miller that's right i'll sing it for you right now <laughs> um but uh yeah every time the song Every time the song threatened to get a little bit hokey to me, he then just started to fade out or mumble, and then I was, mm-hmm. like, laughing and kind of, like, I ended up really liking the song because it just feels like a fever dream. Yeah, yeah. It's very abrupt when it starts, though. And then, well, I guess we cut away for a second, but then he wakes up and he sees he's got Yeah, a right across roommate. from Nan, which I was, like, I didn't, of course, realize at first that Nan is now blind because I was like, "What's going on?" Does mm-hmm. she? I thought maybe she had her. She had had like a hemorrhage that had caused her to lose her memory, and she just didn't remember that John Lakeman is the person who she's across from. I knew something was up because she's not freaking out immediately. I also wondered if he was under arrest for some, like if maybe he was handcuffed to the bed. But then it was like, why would Nan be convalescing across from him? A lot of questions. They get answered when you realize she's now blind. Hopefully, it's temporary, and uh, and and does not know that he is the person that she's been chasing this whole time. And that's heartbreaking when, because it's, I mean, this is what the show does so well. He opens his eyes. He sees Nan seemingly staring directly at him. We think, ah, what a twist. Now she's got him. He's ensnared once again. And she's staring directly at him with a very kind of um, solemn and somewhat Mm -hmm. fierce visage, right? Nan-like, I would say. Nan-like. 
could just be Nan taking it all in. So that alone is a twist. And then we come back and we realize, oh, the twist is she can't see. And now this becomes, again, an emotionally very heavy part of the show because, once again, John is literally face-to-face with, you know, the repercussions of his actions. And he doesn't yes. want to hurt people. He doesn't right. want to hurt people like Nan. You know, they're supposed to be on right. the same side, which is on the side of good and the side of lawfulness. Um, and so then we see him, you know, just seeing her and her realizing that she's blind uh, yeah, bums him out, for lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when we see he passes the room again and he sees uh, her entire family, all of her, her many, many sisters gathered around. And he sees all of the love that she has around her and how he has irreparably... I mean, potentially irreparably harmed her life. Like he's, that's what breaks him more than getting shot in the foot, Mm -hmm. more than having fingers Mm -hmm. cut off his hand. What breaks him is him seeing um, the results of his actions. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that really plays out in a really heartbreaking way. Um, And, you know, there's that moment where Tom encounters him in the stairwell and he's like, what are you doing out here? And he's just like, I just wanted to get out of there Mm -hmm. because he just is like the, like you said, the repercussions of his actions are really starting to kind of stack up on him. Uh, they get on the train. They get out ahead of the various forces who are kind of converging on the hospital because they realize the release time. I think it's like, isn't it the cops from Cleveland or like he gets out at such and such time? So Milwaukee. They, they sort of get, yeah, the Milwaukee. Uh, <clears throat> sorry to mess up my Midwest cities. <laughs> That's um, what I'm here for. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> this is ve- that's very much <laughs> your lane, and uh, I'll I'll stay out of it. But um, anyway, yeah. So then uh, there's that. One of the things that seems to be happening is Tom is getting the message a little bit that he's a shit father, so he's starting to try to do some things to be less shitty. But of course, a leopard can't change their spots completely. And so it's always a struggle for him. And his first his first gut instinct is almost always wrong because I think it's about self-preservation. And so they're on the train and it's like, uh, you know, Dennis basically passes out from the pain of having the fingers reattached. Which, by the way, that's like a very touching scene from Dennis, too, because when Dennis is not being like, hyperbolic and yelling about best friends or whatever and he's just trying to keep it together that's when he's of course the most like you have the most empathy for him he's just i mean what he says something like like just the the pain i've just this the bone reattached i've never experienced anything like it or whatever Mm -hmm. like he feels kind of sheepish that he just literally lost consciousness from pain yeah yeah and dennis is not Dennis certainly does not start off as a selfish character. He's definitely self-involved, but I also think he legitimately wants to help. I mean, I guess there's always yes. a little bit of self-involvement with him, though, right? Like, even like, hey, I can help you. Look at my muscles. And he pops his shirt, like one of the iconic scenes, right? So there's always I a guess, sense I guess of you that. Could, yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Technically, that meets the definition of being self-involved, but it all comes from just a place of neediness and wanting to fit in. He's just a mm-hmm. guy who just is looking for a place to belong. And those things, you know, about like, you know, check out my muscles or whatever. It's all him just trying to just trying to fit into relationships and to be John's bestie. So I don't know. None of it seems selfish to me because, I mean, he still would basically run through a wall 
for for John if he thought that it would cement their status as best friends. Yeah. Tom has this kind of moment of of being 5% less shitty of a father and saying, "You know what? Like, well, how are you feeling?" and 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 John's like, "I'm fine." And then he's like, "Yeah, but the other guy uh fainted." Is he called the normal guy? Is he called the normal guy? Yeah, he says, you're, "So you're saying uh, yeah, he says the regular guy fainted. Regular I think guy. is exactly what Tom says. <laughs> uh, so you're saying you're okay because you had the same thing done. And then he asks, "How are you?" Which is just like such an intense moment. We get a John Lakeman smile alert, and you just feel like this is the first time in a long time that Tom has ever just actually inquired about how the fuck his son is. And you get that smile from him, and then they say. He's like, let's you know, go get the medicine. Like, and then of course that's the un- that's we learn is the undoing of everything. Mm-hmm. Because, is that the one legged cop who had his leg stolen from the swimming pool? Is that who that is? Yeah, yeah. Because the Wisconsin cops are now, um, or I guess the Milwaukee cops are are now. We see them. Um, I consider them the Cleveland cops. <laughs> the, the Cleveland cops. Uh, we see them, I believe, in Milwaukee actually getting the news when everybody's laptops and uh, smartphones ping with the news mm-hmm. that a John Lakeman checks himself into the hospital. And then I feel like the show does a good job. Something I probably missed the first time is we then do see a quick shot of them in like of the Midwestern cops in uh, – like a cafe or something in Paris to establish that they got this news and they hightailed it over to, to Europe uh, to pursue him, which is, you know, out of their jurisdiction to say. Well, the no, least. they have that orange thing, though. What's that called again? Was that issued to them? I believe that okay. they I'm I, and it's a little foggy for me, but my memory is that one of them figured out something that involved them being allowed to try to get him back on that because they're not you know they're they've been through it as cops and they've been demoted and denigrated but they're not idiots mm-hmm. and my sense is that one of them figured out that and then i get was also getting something that was like a blue paper right like there's a couple of different mm-hmm. there's a couple of different kinds of like legal international uh, arrest warrants for lack of a better way to describe them that are going on i kind of have this memory that the the, the Milwaukee cops figured that out on their own. I could be misremembering. Mm-hmm. But this is an interesting um, way to tell the story is throughout this episode, we see little clips of depositions with them, the Milwaukee police, mm-hmm. uh, talking about how they finally caught up to Lakeman. And it, it sounds mm-hmm. like apprehended him. Now we don't even get right. that in this episode. In fact, this episode is kind of a, a, a happy note. Right. I kept waiting for them to like storm the park or something and then again it's like what i love about this show i now feel like i know okay so he was apprehended by these these cops from milwaukee who all had different things going on whether it was emotional issues or being very small or you know missing a leg or whatever john is just such a badass in the show and that like nobody can ever bring him down fully the fact that it was those cops is just kind of (laughs) great it's kind of very on brand for the show. But yeah, I kept waiting to see how it was going to happen because it just seems just seems like they're not going to be able to bring him down, but I feel like I I believe it's happened because that's part of this um this kind of deposition or debrief. 
Um, what did you think about – this is going to be me being a little snowflakey here and just a tad critical. What did you think about the shot? I know what you're going to say, and with, I didn't like it. You didn't like it with the, where the camera the is. lily. Yeah, because yeah. you can see that the cameras – okay, so what I'm talking about here is when we, we cut to the deposition chair, but instead of it being focused on the short police officer's face, it's only the very, very top of his forehead and then the back of the chair because the joke is, ha-ha, he's really short, and then whoever is running the camera adjusts it. And I, I feel like this show does a really, really good job of not – I don't know if even punching down is used a lot. I don't know if punching down is the right word here. But not making a joke of the fact that people are misfits in all their own ways, but actually kind of celebrating it and, and looking at how people are very complicated from, from birdbath to John to everybody. Uh, and that was just one moment where it was kind of like – we're kind of having a quick laugh at the expense that this guy is a little person or sh- or extremely short or whatever. Yeah, to me it was just like, well, we get it. If we've watched the show this long, we know that he's small. And so I just didn't feel like it needed that one last little bit of of it just felt like it was like it was unnecessary. It was it was, you know, I don't know what you'd gilding lily i guess i use that a lot but it's like that yeah that that shot i was like i could have done without it i didn't even i wasn't offended by it i just thought it was like like we get it he's small like that's a big part of the plot we've been watching it now for many episodes um we don't need one more thing to confirm that mm-hmm. um and i don't even know if i would say that that's like in my mind even i guess it i guess it is at the expense of that character but but, it's yeah, I just not, thought it was kind of like... And I'm not totally snowflaking out here about that aspect of it. Like, uh, oh, no, how can you be so insensitive? This is a travesty. That's that's not that's not what yeah. I'm saying. I'm just saying, generally speaking, this isn't a show that seems to take a shot like that. Right. I would agree with you. Um, so it's funny that we both noticed that. I mean, I guess it's a fairly memorable shot, so probably a lot of people noticed it. But, yeah, I kind of had the same reaction. Um, there's this uh, quick scene... With Carol, who is Edward's uh, son's mother, uh, and Edward on that park bench by the river talking. And it's just like, I don't know. I go back and forth on Edward. Like, I know his heart's in the right place, but it's just like, he's just such an idiot sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's like, like as if he thinks that her major malfunction is that she's embarrassed she couldn't reattach some fingers. Mm-hmm. Like, his his sort of opening line is like, a lot of vets probably couldn't do that or whatever. It's like... This is going to be, I mean, God bless Mazel Tov over the marriage, but it's going to be a long marriage if that's how he reads their disagreements. Like, yeah, it kind of plays into what I was saying last week, and maybe I'm missing, I mean, maybe I'm not, maybe I haven't given that credit enough character for actually having some sort of um, developmental issues when it comes to communicating with human beings. I mean, obviously he's got Do you think sort Edward of- actually has something diagnosable that makes it hard for him to just, like, not say stupid things? I mean, maybe diagnosable or just, like, somebody who, like... It's very clear, right? Like, when we see him... He's got some sort of arrested development, certainly. Like, he, he still dresses up in his favorite Beastie Boys tracksuit. Um, we see that, and it's always... It's been kind of funny to watch, but I criticized him last week for, um, like, when his, I guess we'll call... I don't know, we'll say girlfriend, uh, comes in and she first learns the news that she's supposed to sew these fingers back on. And he gives, and I was like, you're not going to give any hello. These are my friends. This is what happened. Let's smooth over. Like he's, he comes into this situation so emotionally blind to the way other people talk and will react to the way he is talking. And then this is kind of, kind of an extension of that as well. 
Did that make sense? Yeah. I think I'm. I'm you. What, yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I am uh, trying not to use the phrase like somewhere on the spectrum because I feel like I overuse that. And I'm not sure if I ever use it correctly, but that's what it felt like to me. It felt somewhat spectrumy. Yeah, yeah. It's clear. Like, I mean, I, I don't. This is no reason for me to get bogged down in these details, but I just. It's so weird for me to think that he's in the in in the world of this show. He's a U.S. Congress person. I think that's a deliberate joke, though, right? Isn't that yeah, kind of, of a joke I mean, I about how statement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it must be. I mean, it's work. It's working as more of yeah. It's working as a piece of commentary for me because it's funny because I covered Congress in my other job, so you'd think I would know this. And Lord knows, I talked to plenty of people who didn't strike me as many clicks off from Ed Tavner. But um, yeah, it's just like funny that he did, that that's his job when he is just so kind of just childlike in certain ways mm-hmm. yeah definitely but you're right that i mean and and just like in real life i think too i mean there's a charm to him but also a frustration with this too does she ever admit he says do you think it's kind of sexy or do you think it's kind of yes. hot that i got shot does she ever agree to yes. that does she say she does yeah, a little it's the very end of the scene Good. it's like literally the first bone she's ever thrown him <laughs> in the entirety of this show that i can tell like she is someone who seems and I mean there are people that have this relationship and it works great for them I guess but she it seems like he was born on her last nerve mm-hmm. and it's not that she's um not justified in that I mean they have a child together that he won't acknowledge publicly for a long time he's constantly on just leaving for Europe and these random things he leaves the kid behind so that the kid then breaks his ankles you know it's like he's not been a great dad honestly mm-hmm. so she she she's very justified in being frustrated with him but like i've never understood those kinds of relationships where the dynamic is one of the people openly hates the other person Mm -hmm. well i think in this case though it has a lot to do with where we met them in their Mm -hmm. relationship we don't know it i mean at some point they had something i mean they had a kid together i mean that the path to having a kid together can take many 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 roads where, but, do, the, um, where do babies come from those oh well, i'm so glad the show has finally come to um has come to this uh okay so when a man really loves a woman when, when a, a cool congressman meets yeah. a dancer slash veterinarian <laughs> slash mom he gives her a very special gift that's right um but you know they have some sort of history they have some sort of past they have some sort of romance some sort of warmth and we just happen to meet both of them during a terrible time in their relationship where you know his absence or his actions lead to an injury of their son and you know like we just i think we just kind of met them at the uh the empire strikes back moment of their relationship and now when she saw that he was in danger and she must have been contemplating what life would be like she's face to face again with the the warm feeling she truly has for this doofus yes she she's she does she wants him to you know she wants him to be safe she does not want him dying she does kind of jokingly admit at the end that it's a little bit sexy that he got shot so now they're gonna they're engaged though so that's a gonna be a thing at the end of the show um now we this again this this episode it feels like it kept being like Tom trying to be less shitty and achieving that for short periods of time, but then it's just like you know real Tom's always just lurking around the corner because it's like you know just as there's kind of this like nice moment of everybody's got their fingers back and we're taking our pain meds and here we are. Tom's like Canterwally leaves in three days, so so we've got two days to rest up, which of course still means. 
we ain't calling it off. You're still going to go single-handedly, basically, go try to take on a whole army of trained, you know, security people who are armed. And so it's like, you know, he's like, Cantorwell is leaving in three days. And, of course, the thing he could have said was, so we're going home. But instead it's, so we've got two days to rest. So there you have that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, you you always portrayed as self-preservation, and that's a huge part of it. He will go to prison. He will be in a lot of trouble. But also I think he does believe in the mission as well, that they need to, to stop Cantor Wally. Yeah, I, I do. Th- I agree with you. I don't think it's completely cynical from him. But, I mean, as this sh- this episode was an extremely kind of, again, I'll keep using the word cathartic one for me just because – it's just a stream of people yelling at Tom Tavner mm-hmm. about how much he's destroying his son and really sons. So that felt good to have that out uh, being spoken aloud on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so then Gregory shows up because he has been summoned by Leslie, Gregory, the HR guy. Um, and he is spitting some knowledge at John about what happens when you don't eat. And when you don't dream, by the way, I didn't realize until this, I don't think we've ever seen John eat on the show once. Yeah, and and we still haven't, right? Do we see him in this episode? I mean, has he ever taken food into his mouth during any scene? I don't think so. It's just like, and I I don't know why that was just, maybe because I'm almost never not taking food into my mouth. Like, to just like realize that, oh my God, this is a character who is so sort of like is taking such little care of themselves that I can't think of one time he ever put food in his mouth. Like, when is the last time he ate? Well, it wasn't the applesauce. I know. And that is also a really good joke, too, when Gregory asks him, hey, well, have you eaten uh, today? Or I can't remember what exactly the question was, but he says, well, sort of. They gave me applesauce at the hospital, a little square of applesauce. Hmm. I didn't eat it, though. Then why is that even a sort of? That's not a just being in the presence of applesauce is right. not the same as eating. Now I would like to um, play some tape and raise right. one of what is becoming a patented, regrettable theory by Andrew Walsh regarding this show. Oh my where god! I'm, is this about the clock again? <laughs> No, 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 no. It's not about the clock again, I think. That's the one it's that... It's about the clock, isn't it? Uh, okay, but during the depositions, if you notice the time code in the bottom right now... Um, so, I'm not going for a theory here that this has really all been a dream, but I told you that I saw some people in some in some message boards. It might have been Greg12 who was throwing this out there. Oh, it was a Neo-folk <laughs> uh, yeah. listserv. That people were saying, boy... I'm not saying that the second season is all a dream, but you could almost see it being a, a dream of John's. Like you could almost see yeah. him waking up at the end of the season and being like, what a crazy dream because there's so much surreality and coincidences, etc. And when Gregory is telling him about the impacts of not getting enough sleep, was that almost a nod to that? Was that almost yeah. um, him saying, like, yeah, you start to lose your grip on what reality is? And is this a meta statement about what we've been seeing as the viewer? I really took it to be at least a nod in that direction. Like, he's describing a psychotic break, essentially. And we know that the things that, and again, the, as this. I'm kind of just repeating you now, but as this season is getting a bit more surreal and as it's just kind of like people are just randomly on trains and people and that sounds like dismissive, like I'm saying it's all just a big jumble and it's not like I'm still really enjoying the show, but it's getting more dreamlike 
mm-hmm. or more fantastic, more sort of fantastical in certain ways um, that would not make me not think it's this is becoming some kind of dream or like weird vision that that John's having. And then when 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 Greg, I mean, all, it's like, is Gregory even there? Like, would would uh, McMillan fly the HR guy to Paris? I mean, I guess Leslie is still sort of a high-ranking official. I guess Leslie, if somebody can sign off on the travel paperwork, it's probably Leslie. But, like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, is Gregory, or is Gregory just some manifestation of something that John needs? By the way, the CIA 100% needs a Gregory. Yeah, like, right. that's also yeah. part of this. Like, why is John getting his only thing that resembles a sort of competent HR help and let's be honest like counseling is coming from the guy who works for the piping company mm-hmm. it's not even the CIA this is like this is a this is a guy that works for a private company that's just like the one of other than like you basically have uh, John's mom to some degree Alice and then Gregory Gordon those are the people that if, if John makes it out of this series alive it'll be because of those three people mm-hmm. can I play some of the tapes since I sort of set it up I just yeah. want to hear Gregory describing the impacts of not getting sleep we need sleep in part because we need to dream it seems can I pause for a moment and congratulate myself for queuing that up absolutely perfectly I am playing this from the TV show. I was just kind of, I'm like, okay, I know they talk for a little bit about what he eats. I'm going to try needle dropping it right there. It was perfect. And I'm a perfect radio producer. Back to Mm -hmm. the tape. Uh, To gain release or some, uh, I guess, clemency from obeying the laws of waking life. The demands of waking life. We need to dream, John. And... If you deny yourself your dreams for too long a period of time and you keep moving forward in the same state, you can be compelled to lose a sense of reality, to make a break uh, from the encumbrance or weight of reality. This can happen irresistibly. So... Let's get to the bottom of what's keeping you up at night. I will tell you one thing. I don't think card tricks are going to do it this time, especially with the whole finger no. situation. Yeah, I think we've moved well beyond sleight of hand. I mean, we're in the realm of slice of hand. Oh, okay. Okay, show title, turn of phrase. I Possibly. asked for it. I got it. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, what I don't understand, okay, so then, <clears throat> excuse me, Gregory and... John play a round of what's the worst thing you've ever done. And boy, oh boy, shots of Tom in the other room are friggin' ominous. Like, mm-hmm. that's where it sort of like starts to become like, is Tom going to kill Gregory? Like, I was, were you have? did you wonder if that was what was going to happen? Um, no, I didn't, I didn't see Tom Even as when you were watching it there. for the first time, you never thought that. No, um, because I didn't necessarily remember that. That's my defense for everything. It it is a very menacing thing, but I didn't. I mean, Tom is the one who brought so many people in on this. So if Tom the whole time has been trying to, like, tamp it down. But the fact that Tom just willy nilly brought Ichabod in, I didn't get the impression like, uh oh, Gregory is in trouble. I guess maybe it was just because they kept cutting to Tom. It's a very interesting way of lighting the shot. 
John is completely blown out by the window behind him. It's like the mm-hmm. world's worst iPhone photo. It's like the thing where you're trying to take a picture of someone. You're like, ah, the light's wrong. Okay, everybody, let's turn around so the light's behind me, the picture taker. And it's like, obviously, that's an intentional decision. John is just completely like in silhouette, I guess you might say. And then they just keep cutting back to Tom, who's just like looks like friggin' Jack Torrance in The Shining when he's just standing in the middle of that ballroom, just or in the middle of whatever that great room, just warging out. Like they just keep going back and forth, and I'm just like, shit, what's Tom gonna do? Well, what Tom does is somehow gives Gregory some story that I guess gets him out of the picture, uh, even though John is just admitted to shooting a hotel maid. What do you think Tom said to him? I think Tom told him what he told Gregory. I'm sorry, what he told Leslie and what he told Ichabod and what he's had to tell everybody else that he's bringing in into the loop on this. Looking at this again now, and I think this is probably my feeling as I was watching it, is that Tom is like almost the opposite of what you're saying, although I think that there's a reason it's shot like this so you can it's open to interpretation. But I also think this is a shot of Tom kind of seeing his son and his son's situation kind of through fresh eyes once again, through Mm -hmm. the eyes of Gregory, to hear John Mm -hmm. describe to a stranger or uh, just a a third party uh, what he's been going through and how he hasn't eaten anything, well, except for the um, applesauce that he looked at earlier in the day. Um, And then just, I think that... I call it food adjacent, by the way. It's a new diet (laughs) I'm trying. So I think that, you know how it is, like, I don't know if it's somebody, a loved one, a partner, a wife, or whatever, somebody that you talk to all the time, but then you overhear that person talking... Even it can be it can be mundane. I remember hearing Genevieve in a uh, conference work call one time and being like, "That's a side of Genevieve I don't ever see," and that, and that's a yeah. big, huge part of her life is her being on business calls. You know, <laughs> this again was years ago, but it's kind of cool. Like, oh man, yeah, there's a whole. I only see one side of you all the time, and I think it can be revealing sometimes to overhear someone that you think you know really well have a conversation with somebody else, and so I think. I think it might even be a softening of Tom a little bit more Hmm. seeing how much pain his son is in and how that must look to somebody else. And I do think that when he takes – I could be wrong about this, and I'll be embarrassed if it turns out to be otherwise, if we find out otherwise. But I think that he tells – he just lets Gregory into the loop now and this ever-growing circle of people who are in the know. I guess I'm a little – I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just surprised Gregory – sort of buys it because Gregory's just like one of those people who just like is always he's very persistent and he's not dumb um, even though he comes off as maybe being a little bit sort of of an innocent and so it's like I feel like Gregory's going to have follow-up questions like okay so this guy does not work for McMillan anymore what are the insurance implications who's is he expensing things like I feel like there's a lot of HR questions that are that are generated finding out that this guy who you thought worked for your company is actually a CIA uh, operative. But but you're, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that it's Tom just kind of explains the situation to him, and then Gregory's, Gregory's like, okay. I feel like Gregory would like have some kind of pamphlet he leaves with Tom, like, this is aftercare for your son, and um, you should have him do these things. You know what I mean? I think Gregory's just like always working on trying to help John. I do think that it's a really dumb question, by the way. What's the worst thing you've ever done? Like, I, as an HR person, as somebody who seems to know his way around HR mm. regulations, like, you just wouldn't... 
I wouldn't. I wouldn't even ask you that, Luke. Like, I mean, you don't. You, you don't wouldn't ask want to know somebody. the answer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Don't probably, ask a question you don't want the answer to, man. Because it was probably to me, and I just don't know yet. Um, I, that's why I always ding ding ding. <laughs> I always shake the sheets before I go to bed in case I find out you put a snake in there for some reason. That mm-hmm. Australia trip we took really did a number on me. Uh, but anyway, yeah, about it that. is kind of a weird. I forgot uh, about bad things I did to you. That's the worst part. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's a really bad question to ask anybody, especially if there's any kind of a, a professional relationship there. Like, who's going to say like yeah. the worst thing I ever did? I'm going to tell you the worst. Yeah, thing I ever you kind of got to warm up to that a little bit. Yeah, right. Um, so we then get to the park where um, uh, Tom and Edward have this conversation about this this kind of you know bat phone that I don't I didn't know about. If it was brought up in the show before, I didn't know about it. But I don't think I think it might be the first time we hear about it. This idea that there's kind of a call it off phone that John's constantly keeping charged and maintained, waiting for the call and never getting it from his dad. Which obviously there are much bigger implications to that. And you get so you get Ed being like, why didn't you ever call him? So that's just like, you know, strike one. Mm -hmm. And then he gets up and and leaves. And then you have um, Alice show up and says, basically, why don't you why don't you give a fuck about your son? And he's like, I gave him a few days off. And then she's like out. It's like a series of people coming up and telling Tom, you suck, dude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice, by the way, that. That, I'm sorry, but you notice okay. also that just John and Charlie are always together. Y- yeah, Charlie the dog, and I think that's always that's, yeah. that's kind of an open. Um, it's an open signifier of how badly he's doing. That the dog Charlie is always there because he's there when yeah. he feels his human needs to be there. And right now, John is his human. Um, now, of course, we need to go right, back. It's like Charlie we- is seeking John out. It's not even John. Charlie is Charlie knows that John is in such a bad place that he needs to be there for him. Yeah, he's like sniffing out the sickness. Um, and we need to go back because we skipped a couple of very important things. But while we're still on this kind of narrative arc uh, and we're near the end of the episode. Way, sniffing out the sickness is a great D.O. record. <laughs> I don't know if you've investigated. Um, what do you think of John's reaction to Edward telling him that he's going to stop being a congressman and become a treasure hunter? <laughs> John just I love it. And smiles. That's so cool. Dude. And you're reminded of the two little boys that you see in the opening credits of season one. John smile alert, all caps. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I put nine exclamation points yeah. after John smile alert. I mean, these are because two we're just... adult men who have seen like the you know some of the hardest things in the world, some of the worst of the world. They've been through whatever, and John's just kind of like, yeah, treasure hunter. That sounds super cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I mean, I have this, I have a, a very, I guess you could say, hesitant relationship with everything that's going on at this point in this episode because it's all good stuff. Mm-hmm. It's Edward is going to get married and actually get out of this bullshit, and John is going to go on his bachelor party because he has a day off for once, and he's got his fingers back, and Alice is there, and it's so cute when, like, you know, she says, are you going to be drinking? Probably. Uh, you know, you're on medication, so you should be careful where well, you're coming. And then she brightens up because it's kind of like, oh, cool. This isn't just like, the bros going off and being idiots. This is like a fun thing we're all going to do. And then, you know, it's a little sticky, but even Edward just being like, oh, so Carol's going to come? Like, but it's like, it's all, this is the moment that as a viewer I've been hoping for forever, which is just a moment of fucking uh, of, of respite for him. But it's this is not the end of episode 
nine or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is I just know it's gonna get bad. But so it's like I'm I'm so happy that this is happening for him, but I'm also dreading whatever's around the corner. Yeah, and I hope I didn't ruin anything, but I'm kinda I kinda foreshadowed that for you as well a while back and said, you know, we're gonna start to see. Well yeah, some you know what you know what it's exactly painful. like? And you didn't ruin anything, but it's like I know I I don't know the exact score, but I feel like I know that something huge happens in this game, but I've been DVRing it. But everyone on my phone texted like, holy shit, mm. and I don't know how to interpret that. And now I'm watching the game, waiting for that holy shit moment. Well, actually, let me back off that a little bit. I don't. I, I'm not. I wasn't trying to set you up for a for a holy shit moment. In fact, that's not at all it. You're already seeing what I'm talking about. The 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 fact that you see John say you're going to become a treasure hunter and smile like um, just seeing the happiness. It's not like it's all going to get blown up. I'm not. We're not talking about um, you know squids are not going to fall from the sky and mm. and you don't know about this huge plot. That would thing. be a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> I, well, I was. Isn't that the uh, Watchmen? thing but um i don't know i think that's what happens oh at the end of watchmen by the way um spoiler alert for those who haven't read the 1986 uh, comic book uh but anyway um uh yeah i i wasn't setting up for some huge bomb to go off but just this kind of vibe um this emotional toll of seeing the gang kind of get together and you have some reunions and some legitimate smiles, but it's still all under this huge, dark, 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 ominous cloud. That's yeah. really all I've been kind of pointing towards. So anyway, you know I hope else? that helps a little bit with your watching because I don't want you set because otherwise I feel like I'm setting you up for something. No, I mean, I'm, I'm I remain very, very intrigued about the show, but I'm also not like. I don't know. I feel like I'm I'm um, I'm semi-realistic about just like how bad this toll is on John. And in fact, we see it. We sort of skipped over that part. But you see the um, James from the torture box who is not OK out there counting the jellyfish. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, it's like because he seemed like he he seemed like he sort of had his shit together in the torture box. As we talked about, he was kind of like, uh, I don't know my name this week, but whatever. Like he and but then it's like, OK, so. He seemed like he was in control there. He got out of the box, and now his, he's he's a broken person on that beach trying to trying to count the jellyfish. So that obviously feels like that's a statement about about maybe John's uh, emotional and mental health going forward. So I'm I feel like I'm kind of clear eyed about the fact that it's not going to be it's not going to be great. There's not going to be a um, Breakfast Club freeze frame of John and everyone jumping on the football field at the end of the day, and then don't you forget about me starts playing. Like mm-hmm. that's not going to be what happens with this show. Uh, or I'd be surprised if it is. Hey, one other thing. Well, two other things. Uh, one other thing that struck me, though, was everyone's kind of having their fuck you moment with Tom, which is great. And the only person who doesn't fully have it is John. And and, and by that, I mean John's reaction amidst all, amidst all of this is basically correctly assessing the fact that because Aget has not come for Mina, she's probably trying to catch Tom. Mm-hmm. Which is just like everyone's just being like, you suck. Let's go to a bachelor party. It's like everyone's having this great. They're in a park. It's a nice day. The dog's out. Like it's this whole like everything is other than, you know, Tom's bummed, but whatever. Everything's sort of good. And this should be where the John character just be like, oh, my God, this feels great to be 
in this world and not the world I've been in. But he's just like his brain's always spinning and it's always in like protect his dad mode. And it's like, wait, why is Mina still here? Well, because Get's not getting her. Why is Get not getting her? Because she's coming for my dad. Like the fact that his brain did all of that bums me out. Mm. But I mean, yeah, uh, that's funny. Bums you out. I think it's all part of the. I mean, again, like, and I it think just I means said he's this, not escaping the gravitational pull of his dysfunction yeah. with Tom. But I also don't think it's dysfunction. I mean, I, I think that. I mean, do you want you as the viewer want Tom to get arrested by a get? Yeah, I want really? to be arrested by the fucking hag. Oh, I I, I don't Tom. no I don't I listen. Tom's a bad father, but I don't think he went into this. I I don't I don't want Tom. I don't think that Tom went into all of this with bad intentions. I think I that agree. he's honestly trying to stop. I don't think stop something probably really um, bad Darth Vader happening. didn't go into anything with bad intentions either. Mm. Uh, Anakin? I mean, they literally call it the dark side. So, I mean, I think there's, I, I, um, right, I mean, no, I listen. I know that there's there's context and there's a reason why people grow up to be evil or what have you. I do not think that Tom is evil. I don't think Tom is Darth Vader. I mean, I, I think that Tom. I think is Tom a compli- has become evil. I don't think Tom has become evil. I think a lot of stuff has caught up with him. I think that his biggest sin is him his his interpersonal relationships and his family relationships, which I don't think he should go to the Hague for. Um, I think that anything that he is punished for is not going to have anything to do with the way he treated his son, which is really what's bothering you the most. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I, I still th- I want Tom to get better. I want Tom to be a better person. But I don't know, man. I'm. I've been kind of a Tom apologist a little bit. Maybe I'm kind of forced into that role a little bit. A Tompologist? A Tompologist. But um, I truly believe the stakes are high here, too, and that bad decisions have been have been made. Um, and, you know, again, kidnapping a, a little girl is not great. Uh, it's interesting how that has turned out so far. But, um, yeah, no, I, it's interesting. So you straight up, as a viewer, want Tom to get arrested. I do not want that. This, though— this gets more to, I think, also just how we view the world, which is I forgot there was even a nuclear threat at this point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's just a backdrop to me of like a guy being a shitty dad. We were talking on the other show, TBTL, that we do about how you were concerned, rightfully so, actually, that your uh, retirement stuff had been compromised because you were getting these weird emails from from the people that manage that account. And I was like, eh, whatever, it's all insured. Like, I tend to just think, eh, it's probably not going to be a nuclear war. Now, stop being a dick to your son. Mm-hmm. Like, that's – and your point is Tom is trying to keep the world from being actually destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so and so on the way to that, he's made some bad decisions. I've already forgotten about that about that MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, it's it's very complicated. And, and the show has set it up in a complicated way. Like, why would it be up to this one person? And also, even if they do get the nuclear capability, it's not like the, the stakes are not like somebody's literally going to push a button. It's going to give around the nuclear capability, uh, supposedly. So it, it is complicated. But I am very interested to know that you are... I know that you've always had problems with Tom, but I didn't know that you actually think a good well, resolution is for him to get arrested and then John... I did say in the very, very first episode of this podcast, I think, though, because I was looking at the descriptions recently. Um, and I think I said this is a show where by the end you want the show to go on forever, but you don't want any more tension. You want everybody to quit their mm. jobs and, and just like hang right. out together and have bachelor parties and have a good time and just like just forget about all of the world's problems because you're just so invested in these characters and you love them so much or most of them and you just want to see them happy. Screw the MacGuffin. 
just leaving that in the clear, although I forgot this is not the show where somebody pulls audio no. of you saying stuff that's unintentionally sexual. I also so there's have... no reason for me to do that. <laughs> yes, I also have a friend who writes for a um, film uh, blog called The MacGuffin, so that could be some yeah. anti-marketing for Let them, me just I say, I, I'm not saying that for me the best outcome of this show is that Tom Tavener goes to The Hague. The best outcome from the show is somehow the nuclear threat is 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 for the you know the nuclear threat is solved at least as it relates to Cantrawally and all of that and like you said everybody goes back home edward becomes a treasure hunter he and carol and their kid live happily ever after john and alice move to tucson and open a uh, a jacuzzi cleaning service and uh you know everybody just lives happily ever after including tom like i'm fine with that i think where it's at for me is if Tom gets arrested, then he can't make John do any more bad stuff. Mm-hmm. That's bad for John, I mean. And so I see that as a win because it just I just want to get Tom out. I want to get Tom out of John's ear because every time, just about every time Tom is in John's ear, John gets hurt. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's animating my opinion on the matter. Um, but it's not like I, I don't I don't want. I'm with you. Like, I don't think that Tom is at his core a bad person or that he got into this for the wrong reasons. I just think that he doesn't understand or he's maybe he's realizing now, but for a long time, he didn't understand how much this singular uh, obsession of trying to complete the missions of just how much it was destroying everything else in his life. And even though he didn't do it intentionally, he did it. And that's why I'm I'm sort of, you know pretty strongly anti-Tom Tavner. Well, speaking of family dynamics, um, I mentioned that a lot of the details of these later episodes were hazy on me, but one scene uh, was kind of circled in my mental and emotional calendar when we started mm-hmm. season two, and that was Leslie's reuniting with his son and his Oh, son's my family. goodness. We almost and forgot about that. I did not. I would not have, because Brutal. to me, this is just one of the most heartbreaking scenes of the entire series. It is so hard to watch Leslie mm-hmm. stumble like this after he worked so hard for so long to get his life in order for the reason that he could meet his son again, clean and accomplished and proud mm-hmm. and reunite with his son who he mistreated because of drug abuse so much. And for him to blow it in this way, and again, it's because of his relapse which is essentially because he got shot in the face by John yeah. Tavner or John Lakeman. Yep. That is a heartbreaking scene. And I didn't even, the reveal on it is, is, is pretty powerful because, like, I mean, we know that he's using again, which isn't great, but when he rolls up to his son's house, by the way, whatever his son's doing or his son and his daughter-in-law are doing, it's working because their house is sick. <laughs> yeah. I want to live in that house. But um, I didn't quite get the, I didn't get how basically fucked up Leslie was Mm -hmm. until they sort of, you know, he's walking up and they have a look on their face and then the camera kind of spins around and you realize his face is still really shot up and his nose is just bleeding away because of his, because of really letting it rip with Mm -hmm. the coke. And it's just, I'm with you. It's just a heartbreak because I mean, this is the collateral damage. This is, don't get me started. This is Tom's fault. (laughs) I mean, really, this is the collateral damage and maybe Tom's serving a higher purpose of trying to avert nuclear war. But when you see the collateral damage up close of what this has done in one person's life, 
It's just – and by the way, and I don't know why I'm making it about this. You want to talk about snowflakey. Leslie's still a person of privilege. There's all these brown people that the collateral damage is worse. Somebody making a bed in a hotel room somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The collateral damage of this is intense. But there's something about – we've identified so much with the Leslie character. To see him in this moment that's so important to him fail so badly and to just look so pathetic um, – is rough. Also, I've done that move with the wine bottle. What he reaches for it and he's like, "Oh, I guess we're already he reaches done with this for one. an empty wine bottle and tries to refill his wine glass uh-huh. with it, which is the number one sign you know you've had too much to drink mm-hmm. because you don't do that on glass number one of wine. You you do it on glass number six mm-hmm. where you're just like grabbing a bottle and you pick it up and you don't even notice the weight of it is empty. And then he pours it. And I forget what he exactly says, but he goes, well, we must have already enjoyed that one. Like you get the sense no one else is drinking wine. Mm-hmm. It's just it's hard because I think I've I, I, I've experienced versions of what he's going through in that moment. And mm-hmm. it is it's very difficult to watch. And what kind of a haircut is he trying to give his grandson? A Dutch boy. <laughs> is that just like. Is that just a kind of a sly little moment of kind of sly allusion to the uh, people protecting Cantor Wally? I think so, yeah. I think it was just a quick little joke, the Dutch boys. What we're so that's a bummer. called a Dutch boy. That's a major, major bummer to see that happen to Leslie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just sad <clears throat> all around. Um, I, always, I, I used to always I, – I felt like – the only thing I invented that sounded even close to something like Benjamin Franklin would have said, or, you know, those like books of like, of kind of quotes. I used to always say, never wash the wine glass you've been drinking from. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when I lived in LA, I'd be like half in the bag. And then I would always break wine glasses when I was trying to wash them at night. Mm -hmm. I think about that because a lot. Yeah. Feeling bad. Cause I'm like, I probably had too much to drink. Well, let me at least, let me future proof tomorrow morning by mm-hmm. doing all the dishes. Yep. And then at least that'll be done. But then I'm pretty, you know, you're clumsy with it because you're a little tuned up. Yeah. No, actually, what I mean to say is I have no idea what you're talking about. What kind of life yeah. of depravity do you lead? What do you think? I'll meet you at Bad Alberts. What do you think um, that he means by I got to bury John Lakeman? Well, I took it somewhat. Well, I took it. Now I'm, now I'm worried that it. What I'm going to say is too obvious. I mean, he he explains it. He says, listen, my cover's blown, essentially. So I was using the name John Lakeman because I can't have all this stuff tracked back to John Tavner. But now the name John Lakeman is worse than any other name because it's associated with all these crimes. They've now – like I don't – does it – Get now, I think, has figured out that his last name is Tavner because he knows that because she knows that Alice's last name is Tavner. Mm-hmm. But I still think most people are looking for John Lakeman. We see that in the montage scene where everybody's cell phones are blowing up and computers are blowing up. Um, and so I think it's also a symbolic thing, though, too. And again, something that is almost hopeful sounding that we're going to have this bachelor party, but it's also going to be like a kind of a, a ceremonial funeral for this character i've been playing that has brought nothing but harm to me i mean that's i'm hoping that's what happens but everybody i felt like the reaction the kind of look on the faces of alice and and edward were both kind of like "Mm," like almost i don't know it just i think it's considering he was riding a bike with no lights on it 
suicidally through mm-hmm. the streets of Milwaukee or whatever. When he says, I'm going to bury John. I mean, I don't think he's going to kill himself, but it just sounds ominous coming mm. from a guy who's in this much emotional pain. Mm. Yeah, I definitely didn't take it like that. I, I I actually took it as much more of an optimistic thing. Him kind of mm. saying, maybe, you know what? I've done all I can as John Lakeman. Maybe it's time for somebody else to fix this problem because John Lakeman is essentially dead now. He's burned. Like, it's, it's done. Uh, or at least that's what he's hoping in this moment. And then the final thing, and again, this gets back to how I've just, for me, the nuclear threat is just such an abstraction that I'm just kind of like, oh, good, Canterwally's leaving. Now John doesn't have to fight those Dutch boys. But, of course, that's not, like, it's not a good outcome that he's leaving. But to me, it felt like a good outcome because mm-hmm. I was just like, good, you go your way. I'll go mine. Yes. Let's just forget this ever happened. It's kind of my natural gut reaction. I do think it's key, uh, without spoiling anything, that he says that he will be le- – they say that Cantor Wally will be leaving at 1 a.m. That's when he's planning on getting out of the country. 1 a.m. Mm, interessante. Mm, that's a good yucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the end of the episode. It did not – again, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but I kind of was like – I was – when the credits happened, I was like, okay, whew, all right. Because I just kept waiting for something extremely, mm. like, bad to happen. I mean, and it was like, oh, they get to at least have this moment hmm. of heading off to the bachelor party. So that was kind of nice. Yeah, no, and I, I kind of apologize for doing that. But I will say, and I think this will improve your viewing, I was not setting you up from some sort of huge, huge thing. It was actually this vibe um, and I'll tell you, I think we're just going to get a little bit more of this vibe. And that's what mm-hmm. that's what always got me was it's it's not the huge bombshells. It's not the huge things. It's just the it's the way the show makes smiles hurt more than getting your fingers mm. cut off sometimes. And like, that's kind of what I was referring to. These these that's, very soft moments. That's a really um, that's a really good way to put it. I've not ever been able to sort of think of it that way, but you're exactly right. There's this show creates this universe where when John smiles, it's somehow Mm -hmm. that's a dangerous thing. Yeah, because it means there's hope. It means that there's a little bit of letting your guard down. There's means you're you're just being vulnerable in this certain way of, of, of embracing the fact that life might be okay. Whereas when you're just grimly standing in a grocer about to like rob a guy to get something and you get your finger shot off. At least you have your core engaged. This mm-hmm. is what when I go to these weight training classes, mm-hmm. yeah. they're always like, "When you're gonna do like a squat, you gotta have your core engaged the whole time." It's like, I mean, he's got his core engaged so much of the show, and then when he just kind of like lets, when he relaxes, that's when it's scary. Yes, that's exactly, and that's all I was saying. That's that's the type of thing that this show was uh, heading towards. That I was mm-hmm. like, again, kind of had circled on my emotional calendar, as I said before. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess that's it. Um, I am uh, very excited to uh, see what happens next week on the show. So, um, uh, again, I'll um, I'll be finding it all out along with the – I wonder if there are people listening to this who are also just watching it one episode at a time and then listening and then watching the next one. Um, I don't know if people are I – might, I might. it's just weird to me to think I might know the least about this show of anyone experiencing this recording. Definitely, yeah. I know the least about it compared to the people that are making the show. That's a given. But like, you know how it ends. I'm sure most of the listeners of this have known know how it's end. I, how it ends. I'm just like this weird. I'm a weird little kind of uh, you know canary in a my own coal mine, just trying to figure it all out. 
Yeah, I think that is an interesting dynamic because I think the and because my brain is bad and I don't remember things well, I, I think that almost everybody listening is probably more informed than we are um, because I think some people are actually on their. I've heard from listeners who watched it all the way through once, then heard we were going to start a podcast about it, watched it all the way through again, but we dragged our feet before starting it. And I think that we have people who are actually watching it for the third time as we're doing this podcast. I'm sure it's not annoying at all to them when we can't remember basic details of the show. I know. I know. Um, All right. Well, that's the show this week. Thanks. We're going to be back here next week uh, looking at the next episode of Patriot. So please join us. Until then, though, remember to always keep it double great. A man who leads a life of danger. Everyone he meets, he stays a stranger. With every move he makes, another chance he takes. Odds are he won't live to see tomorrow. Secret agent man, secret agent man. They've given you a number.